I used to play double bass really, really badly, <laughs> which is a shame because I didn't even really want to play double bass. Um, but there was a deal that was set up where my, my high school music teacher, she came to me and she said, well, if you would agree to play double bass for our school orchestra, then I'll arrange for you to get bass guitar lessons. And see, this was kind of a big deal for me because my dad had just got a new CD player. And CDs were kind of the new thing at the time. And the, one of the first CDs he had bought was Queen's Greatest Hits. And I'd, I'd taken to sitting down in the corner with the headphones on and, and listening over and over again to one of my favorite songs at the time. the song called Crazy Little Thing Called Love. And it was a song, and it kind of had this pretty simple bass line, but it was kind of cool. It was kind of... Boom, boom, this thing, boom, boom, God love, boom, boom, I can't handle it, boom, boom. And I just thought, I, I, I had pictures and visions of me playing in this band. And so it was imperative for me to have access to this high school bass guitar, and if that meant playing the double bass, then I would take one for the team and suck it up. I'm a 12-year-old boy, and my uniform's a little too big for me because parents always buy the uniform too big so you can grow into it with this oversized instrument, and I'm terrible at it. And the first song that we, um, a musical piece we're playing in the orchestra was Puckle Bell's Cannon. And most of you know it because every second wedding has it, right? But it's, it's notable for this very, very simple bass line, eight notes. Da, 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 da. Very simple. It just goes over and over and over, all the way through the piece of music. Ought to be pretty simple, even for a newbie. But it wasn't. I never mastered that simple bass line. And to my horror, we had to go right early on in the piece. We had to go in a school musical exchange. And our school orchestra had to go to another school, and we had to join orchestras and play Packle Bell's Cannon. So I'm there at the back, and there's Mr. Brusser. Now, Mr. Brusser, he's this crazy-haired guy, way overly passionate, even for someone that loves music, and frankly scary. And so he's up there conducting and bringing in, calling in this bass line, and I'm trying to get myself started and just cannot get it. And he just stops everything, both school orchestras, and looks and turns and fixes his eyes on me in the back corner, barely see over the top of the bass. And he just bowled me out. I'm standing there and just shame, embarrassment. It's like, oh, I can't even grasp a simple eight notes. And I promptly gave up, never to play the double bass again, never to get the bass guitar, and never get to, get to play crazy little thing called love. But as Providence would have it, almost 30 years after, it's Packle Bell's Cannon and Freddie Mercury's crazy little thing called love. You're going to help us this morning as we unpack our text. Because we're going to find that it's not a crazy little thing called love. It's actually of the utmost importance. That all of us are going to give ourselves to love something. And what we choose to love is going to have implications. We're also going to find 
that there's a very simple baseline that's going to come through Scripture. And if we fail to master it, it's going to leave us with shame and regret. And so with that, we approach the Shema. If you have your your Bibles with me, we're in Deuteronomy 6, starting uh, verses 1 through 9 and 20 to 25. You want to think about this this, this text. We want to understand this, this is like the high point in, in Jewish prayer tradition. Even to this day, uh, my wife, uh, Kara, she works with, with a Jewish woman. And when she heard that I was preaching t- um, this weekend, she asked, well, what's he preaching on? And Kara said, well, the Shema. She's like, wow, that is cool. We sing that to our kids every single night. That's great. And so this is like the first prayer that a young Jewish child would be taught by their family. If you draw to mind a picture that Mark used last week, he, he was talking about uh, the, these laws and the commandments of Israel. And he thought of it like a pyramid. Do you remember that? And the, in the middle level of this pyramid was going to be the Ten Commandments. And that was kind of like the Constitution, we said. And coming up in the rest of the book, there's going to be like the case law, all these laws that come into how we actually apply this in life. And so that's coming up. And here we're just arriving to this point where Moses in his second uh, great speech to this people, they've been wandering the desert for 40 years. They're about to, to, to cross over into this promised land, the land of milk and honey. And Moses is reaching this crescendo point and he's going to take us from this mid-level Ten Commandments and we're going to scale up to this pinnacle. Here's the peak. Here's what all the commandments have come to. This is it, the crux, the sharp edge, the key central thing that we want to remember. And he starts. And so they're listening. And here we're going to hear the start of a little bit of a baseline that's been coming through. In verse 3, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which have commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you and a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you hear, as we read that through, there's echoes of creation. This, this story they were a part of, and here it comes, coming through there. There's God who has spoken, who has commanded. He speaks, there's this good land that he is giving them, graciously giving This is this command that's going to establish purpose. You're going to multiply. You're going to create other little image bearers to go in through the land. It establishes that, that, that sense of purpose of who they are. And then it establishes sovereignty as well. That God is the God of the covenant. He is the one that is to be obeyed. The creator. And, and to, to disobey that commandment is to break that covenant relationship. And so here we hear as they start 
listening to this echo of this creation coming in. And it's a people marred by failure in many ways, just like us. They would have recognized, of course, that, well, well Adam didn't obey. They'd have seen just their own parents who are no longer with them. They've died, and the parents that had the chance to go into this promised land, and then them, because of their parents' disobedience, have been wandering around in this wilderness all of their lives up to this point, and it's got to be fresh in, in their memories. And so they know this. And then verse 4 here, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. And it's like, here, it's like, this time, God's going to speak again. And he starts off, we're at the pinnacle now. What will he say? He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We look at that and it's, it's almost like, yeah, maybe it's a, a, a theoretical statement about monotheism. But it, it's far more than that, this idea of this kind of one God. This is a particular God, your God, the God of creation, the God of covenant. And think back where we came from just a couple of weeks ago in Deuteronomy 4. He's talking, he's saying, look, I'm the God that's brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. And he talked about where else have you heard of a God who could, you'd speak and you'd still be there, who could actually pluck a nation from, from another nation, a powerful nation, and pluck you out and free you? But who, what other God is there that could do this? This is this God. He is one. There's the one God of the covenant. He goes on, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You hear the mirroring here again, this echo, a repeating of the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, to the land. And here's this God, this is who I am, before I have no other God before me. And here, so your Lord, the God is one. Love him wholeheartedly. All your heart, all your soul, all your strength. All that you think about is to be about this God. Or that my very person, the very, my very being, is to be about this God. One translation looks at your strength, all your very muchness, everything, all your, your resources, everything available to you, everything, your whole of self, your life, is to be for this God. Wholeheartedly love this one God. he says, well, okay, we're supposed to wholeheartedly love this God. Well, what, is that, what does that mean? And if you follow through, he says, well, teach them diligently to your children. Sense of others loving this God as well. Well, how do we teach them? He says, well, you'll talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, this is the whole of life discussion. This isn't some compartmentalized aspect of life that just the faith that this is my private component, and it's in Sunday morning is where we teach about God, and then uh, a career and home and what we go about and the other however many hours in the week is separate. This is, no, this is teach your children. It's like whether you're at home 
or whether you're, you're out and about doing stuff, you're talking about God. He's saying it's, it's in the morning when you get up, you're able to talk and teach about God because God is there in the morning. And when you get to the other end of the day, you're talking about God as well because God is there in the evening. It's at home, it's at work, it's morning, it's night. We're teaching and talking about God. And he goes beyond this. He then talks, not only do we just um, share and, and talk, but he's saying you remember them. Don't forget. We've got slow minds. We kind of get distracted. There's so much stuff going on. He said, don't forget, remember. Well, how do we do that? He said, bind them as a sign on your hand. Be frontlets between your eyes. You should write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Wouldn't you notice here, do you, do you picture that, this, this individual part? It's, in front, it's on my hand, in front of my eyes. This is to be a remembrance for me to love in my individual life. But then it's also going to be on the doorpost, over the door frames. Because this is going to be a love that we're going to have to work out as a family, as roommates. How are we going to love in this aspect as well? And not only that, though, it's going to be on the city gates written above there because we're going to have to work out what it means to love God wholeheartedly, not just as an individual, not just as a family, but we have to work this out in community as well. What does this look like for society to remember this God of the covenant and to love him wholeheartedly there? This isn't a compartmentalized, when you think of the, kind of this modernist notion of a private faith. This stands absolutely against that. It's all of life and all of society. We need to work this out. And yet sometimes we don't, do we? I don't know what it's like for you, but I'm easily distracted and I find there are parts of the day where my mind does go elsewhere. And I wonder, how do I do? And it just doesn't seem that easy. I don't feel even that close to God. It doesn't seem to be in my heart. And it was interesting where we left off last week. Over here, there's these Ten Commandments. They're, they're, they're etched, etched in two tablets of stone. And, and yet God is saying here, these words are to be written in your heart. And so I wonder if you would ask with me as well, as well, how do we get these words from words on stone tablets? To words that are in my heart at the core of my very being, the words at the heart of my identity. Because sometimes I'll pick up the Bible and it's like, just do I feel them at a heart level? Don't they feel it's not stone, but sometimes it can feel just as distant? And so that's the question I'd like to discover, and I think we're going to find the answer. We're going to skip over, there's a bunch of warnings, and Mark will cover them next week, so we'll come to them. But I think there's an answer that we're going to find. How do we take these words from stone into our heart so that we might wholeheartedly love this one God? And the answer, I think, is seen in verse 20 when the son, after some time, approaches his dad. And he comes up and he says, Dad, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes? And the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. Dad, why do, we, why do we do the things we do? You know there's going to church on Sunday. My friends don't. 
that, you know, this, this whole um, approach to relationships that we have that's different than most of my college friends, why, why do we do that? Why, when the, when the offering basket goes around on a Sunday, do you put money in that? I find that's odd. Why, why do we live the way that we do? In the dad, he doesn't skip straight to verse 24. Well, the Lord commanded us to do it. Why do we do this, Dad? Well, the Lord said so. Because when Pharaoh was commanded to, to let the people go, his answer was, well, who's Yahweh that I should obey him? And I wonder if sometimes we skip from verse 20 to verse 24, whether it can just produce a hardened heart. Because I told you so. And I wonder if in your life, as maybe in mine, that was perhaps a, a perception that I got, this commands of saying, well, you've just got to do it. And yet here, the dad invites the son into a story. And he says, let, let me tell you how things were. I've got to take you back, back into the story here. And he says, we were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord would, brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And he showed us signs and he showed us wonders. He did deeds against Pharaoh and his household. He brought us out of there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. This is the God of the covenant who has acted to take us out of slavery and into freedom. Out of slavery and shown that he is a God who is faithful to his promises. I promised you your fathers. I promised you this land. I will put you here. And the son is invited in. And it's this story that we see this repeating baseline that's been going through Scripture. God speaks. His word brings life. There's a gracious land. There is purpose. There's a sovereign relationship. And humanity disobeys. And there's judgment. And yet then there's grace. And the God of the covenant acts again to save, acts again to redeem, and again speaks to bring life. And humanity rebels. And over and over again, this Pucklebell cannon, this baseline, coming over and over. And it's the baseline that underpins our story and that we're invited to come into. And in my own life, I couldn't master that baseline either. I, I, I knew the laws of God. I knew the commandments. But I didn't know the God who commanded them. And so instead of loving the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength, I chose crazy little things to love. Instead of finding life and purpose and wholeness in the Lord, I was going to find them somewhere. I found them elsewhere. And silly little things. And just like being bawled out for not mastering that baseline way back as a little 12-year-old boy, it still leads to that sense of shame, of missing out, of regret, of condemnation. And yet, this baseline, when we look ahead, this command 
His word now comes to us in flesh in Jesus Christ. There's this bass line now all of a sudden just starts to become the melody. This bass line starts to become the chorus. This bass line becomes the melody and the chorus that becomes the repeated chorus, the chorus that's going to be sung throughout eternity. And it's God's word that comes, Jesus, who is obedient, who does love the Lord as God, his Father, wholeheartedly, and who does give himself wholeheartedly in love to us. And it's an understanding that if I'm to love wholeheartedly the Lord, I've got to know that the one I'm to love wholeheartedly is the one who's wholeheartedly loved us. When I think about this, what does it look like? How do we take these words from words on stone to words that I write on my heart? I think of the story in Luke 7. Jesus is invited to spend dinner with a Pharisee, a lover of the law. And this woman comes in who she's probably failed to learn and master the baseline as well, to understand who God is. She knows all too well her shame. She's probably been bowled out. She knows the exclusion. She knows the embarrassment. She knows the sense of the loss of self, that she's not welcome. And she comes in, and she encounters this chorus and melody, this Christ, the one who comes to bring salvation. And she meets, and she finds out that her sins have been forgiven. She finds that the commands have only been given in the context of a relationship of redemption. She's to obey the law in response to her salvation, not to earn her salvation. And she comes and she hears, your sins are forgiven. And what does she do? She comes down and she throws herself at his feet, weeping, clearly moved at a heart level. She takes this expensive oil and she pours it out, wholeheartedly giving herself to her Savior. A whole life there at his feet in worship and in love, not holding back anything. And the person that loves the law but doesn't love the one that gave the law, is just stunned by it. And yet for her, could you imagine one day if she was to have a child and as she's giving away ridiculous amounts of money in the eyes of other people, as she's turning up and she's worshipping in the morning and at night, she's going about her day and showing radical hospitality to people in her life and her son or daughter comes up and says mom why, why do you live like that she would invite her son into the story and say let me tell you about Jesus I wholeheartedly love Jesus 
because he's wholeheartedly loved me. And the Gospels are filled with these other stories of people whose lives and individual stories have been consumed by this greater, larger, bigger story. He pictures Jesus is about to ascend to his Father's right hand. This whole group of people standing around him. And he gives the last words. What does he say? Well, his greatest commandment, he says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. You should love your neighbor as yourself as well because they bear my Father's image. They bear the image of this God that you say you love. Love them. And then what does he say? How do we love? It's we obey the commandments. But he says, go and make disciples of all nations, other image bearers. Go and teach it as you were going about your day and morning and night, at home and in the marketplace, wherever you may be. Make disciples and teach them to obey all my commandments. But he would also say this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart your mind and your soul and all your strength. But doing it, love wholeheartedly knowing that I've wholeheartedly loved you first. 